midst of World War II, C.S. Lewis gave four radio broadcasts over the BBC, which would later be compiled into a book entitled Mere Christianity. This book inspired my journey to know why I believe what I believe. Welcome to Bear Christianity. Last week, I feel like I shook up a two-liter Pepsi bottle and then tried to open it, and now I'm running to the sink before it gets everywhere. The, <laughs> the Doctrine of the Trinity is a massive subject, and there's no way to cover 2,000 years of discussion in about a, you know a 40-minute episode. So my plea to you, faithful listener, is to hang with me. I'm planning to spend a few more weeks on the Trinity and hopefully answer some of those questions that may be burning inside of you. Also, a lot of people have sent in questions, and I do plan to answer all of those, uh, you know, those questions regarding the Trinity over the next few weeks. So please just hang with me because I I, I try to do these in, in little short increments. So, well, if you consider, you know, roughly 40 minutes short. Okay, so let's talk about the Trinity some. It, you know, you may be a little... Uh, Frustrated, or it may it may have been like a sort of an overload last week to kind of think about all these big concepts, and so I want to reel it back in uh, our focus a little bit uh, before this episode really gets going. So Fred Sanders is a one of the theologians that I really like. He's he's kind of an expert on the Trinity. He's written several books on the Trinity, and he recommends connecting the Trinity to the gospel as quickly as possible. So instead of thinking of the Trinity as some complex, mysterious doctrine that doesn't really have any practical implications for you, connect it to the gospel. And and he says this, this is a, a quote, the eternal God who always was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit made himself known in the central biblical acts of the Father sending the Son and sending the Holy Spirit. So, you know, that's kind of the way he recommends thinking about the Trinity. So basically, if you know... The Father sent the Son and the Holy Spirit, and that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all God, then you understand the basics of the Trinity. Now, this word, he said, you know, connect it to the gospel. This word gospel means good news, and it was a it like, there's lots of different ways that it could be used, but one example, just to, to help you figure out what this word would mean, one example was it was a word used to describe a message that a country's army was victorious in battle. So the messenger would like come into the city with the gospel or or a gospel, a good news message. And so the good news of the Bible is that we are saved from our sin, and that is done by the Trinity, the triune God. The gospel is God the Father, because he loved us, sent his Son to save us, and the Holy Spirit to bring us into fellowship with the triune God. So this happens in the life of every single Christian. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is a great passage where you can see you know, how each of the three persons of the Trinity are involved in, in the salvation process. And so each of those three persons have a specific role, but it is the one Lord, the one God who saves. In his book, uh, John Frame is a, a theologian. He wrote uh, he's written several books, but he wrote an introduction to systematic theology. So it just explains a lot of the basics about Christianity. And it's called Salvation Belongs to the Lord, because that was a, a central theme. And he says this, the Father plans, the Son executes, and the Spirit applies. So it is the one Lord responsible for our salvation, but each of those three persons take on different roles. 
And so for the Christian, the triune God is the object of our worship. When we say we are worshiping God, we are worshiping the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That the triune God is the object of our worship because it is the one God in three persons which created us and also saves us from our sins. Now, I mentioned last week, and then I didn't really answer it, (laughs) so sorry about that, but I mentioned last week the reason that I wanted to initially get into the Trinity and know more about it is because I had this question, why don't, uh, why are Jehovah's Witnesses and Latter-day Saints, and so I'll say this one time, Latter-day Saints is the same thing as Mormons, okay? So why are Jehovah's Witnesses and Latter-day Saints not considered Christians by, you know, main mainline Christian denominations, okay? Why are they considered cults and not Christians? Because Jehovah's Witnesses and Latter-day Saints both have a very high view of the Bible. Uh, they, you know, we both, uh, they both say words like, like God and Heavenly Father and Jesus and, you know, lots of the same language. So on a superficial level, there's lots of similarities. So why are they not considered Christian and the reason kind of boils down to their denial of the Trinity. And so that is, that's why I was like, okay, well, I got to know more about the Trinity here um, just to, to make sense of all of this. And so let, let's just go through a few different things. Consider this. If, if uh, there are two people named John, okay, and so you and I are having a conversation, and I say, okay, um, I know John. Do you know John? And they're like, yeah, I know John. He's tall and he has blonde hair. And I would say, well, you know, wait a second. No, the the John I'm talking about is short with dark hair. Okay. So we're talking about two different Johns. And so when I say, do you know John? You know, we're we're not talking about, they can say, yeah, I know John, but we're not actually talking about the same John. Okay. So think about that. And then let's let's think about what Jehovah's Witnesses first, and then I'll, I'll give a brief explanation of what Latter-day Saints believe. So Jehovah's Witnesses believe Jesus is the first and greatest of God's creation. Therefore, instead of Jesus being co-eternal and co-equal with God, he's just a created being. And so, you know, this is very different. And in fact, Jehovah's Witnesses believe it's it's a little bit strange. And uh, and again, I really look forward to getting deeper into uh, and explaining more about different religions. Those will be future episodes. But um they basically, Jehovah's Witnesses believe Jesus is Michael the Archangel, and also they believe the Holy Spirit is is like an impersonal force. Uh, so, like like gravity is a is like an energy force. The Holy Spirit sort of in that kind of category. And so, we even though we may say God and we may say Jesus when we're talking to them, we are not talking about the same God or the, or the same Jesus or the same Holy Spirit for that matter. So. We're, we're using the same words, but we're talking about different things. And so a false Jesus cannot save you. And, and when you say, you know, when Jehovah's Witnesses say they are worshiping Jehovah, they are not worshiping the true Jehovah or Yahweh or Lord. Those all mean the same thing. They're not worshiping the true Lord of the Bible. They're worshiping a false God. And so, a, you know, worshiping a false God cannot save you. On a similar grounds, for Latter-day Saints, their founding prophet, Joseph Smith, said this in one of his most famous speeches. It was actually at a funeral, and it's called the King Follett Discourse. I'll put a link 
um, to the entire thing. It's it's on the official Latter Day Saint website, uh, and you can read it for yourself. So I'll post a link in the episode notes. But Joseph Smith said this: God Himself was once as we are now, and is an exalted man, and sits enthroned in yonder heavens. And then a little bit later, he says, It is necessary we should understand the character and being of God and how he came to be so. For I am going to tell you how God came to be God. Now, I'm stepping aside from the quote just a second. That means that God was not always God, that he he eventually became God. That's very different from the eternal God of the Bible. So he said, and then I'm jumping back into the quote. This is Joseph Smith again. We have imagined and supposed that God was God from all eternity. I will refute that idea and take away the veil so that you may see. And then a little bit later on in the speech, he says, uh, he talking about God, he was once a man like us, yea, that God himself, the father of us all, dwelt on an earth the same as Jesus Christ himself did. So basically God lived as a man just like us. On a different on on Earth on a different Earth and sort of earned his way or or became our God, uh, you know, the God of this universe. But he had a God before him that he worshipped, who was a God of his universe. And then there was a great, you know, uh, so he had God Himself, our heavenly Father, also had a heavenly Father. So that would be like our heavenly grandfather who had a you know, and then there was a heavenly great-grandfather, and so on and so forth. It, it just goes on and on and on into eternity past, basically. And so, you know, Latter-day Saints, although they only worship the one, you know, heavenly father, there are there there is a belief, there's a an idea that there's billions, possibly, you know, what basically an infinite number of gods in the past— and then there will be in the future as well, because if you do all the right things and you you live the life you're supposed to live, eventually you will become a god of your own universe as well. You you will be just like Heavenly Father, and um, and so that's that's kind of the basics of theology there. Now that is very different from the God of the Bible, the eternal God of the Bible, and some of the verses that we're going to talk about in just a second will will help to clarify that. And so, you know, again, we're we're not talking about it's just like the the two John illustration. We're not taught when we say God, when we say Jesus, we're not talking about the same thing. We're using the same word, but we're not talking about the same God. And again, a false god cannot save you. Now, what was the biggest problem the Jewish leaders had with Jesus? And it was his claim to be God. It was his claim, you know, they the biggest problem they had was Jesus claimed to be equal with God. And and they, you know, that really bothered them. They considered it blasphemy and they wanted to kill Jesus for it. And would you consider the Jewish leaders Christians? I mean, of course not, because they denied who Jesus really was. And in a way, even though they're, they're, it's, it's not in an antagonistic way on the, you know, on the surface, these groups, Jehovah's Witnesses, Latter-day Saints, they are denying who the true God really is, who the true Jesus really is. And so it is this denial that is the reason that they are not considered Christian by, you know, by other Christians. So in a previous episode, I mentioned the I am statements of Jesus and how the Jews realized what Jesus was claiming, right? And the famous verse is John eight fifty eight, where Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And, you know, 
just listen to previous episodes if you need more information on that. But the Jewish leaders knew Jesus was making a direct claim to be God. Well, in that same chapter, John chapter 8, but several verses earlier, it, the, the conversation's just getting going, okay? And you can, so, you know, go read that for yourself. But Jesus is talking about this special relationship he has with God the Father, and he says this, you, and this is John 8, 23 and 24. Jesus says, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. So Jesus automatically is separating himself. He's, he's saying, I'm not the same as you. And, and then he says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, here's the interesting part about that. A, a few verses later, Jesus is going to you know, drop the mic when he says, before Abraham was, I am. But in the original Greek language, when he says this phrase here, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins, the he is added in there by translators just to make the sentence uh, smooth. But Jesus actually said, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And in the very next verse, the Jewish leaders are a bit confused and they say, who are you? It's all, So basically, Jesus kind of throws out this I am statement, this mic drop, and it, it's like, it kind of like, wait a second, who 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 are you claiming to be here, is what the Jewish leaders are saying. And then later on, he makes it abundantly clear with the, you know, before Abraham was, I am. And so Jesus says, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that Jesus is Lord, you will die in your sins. So you've you've got to get it right about who Jesus is. Now, let me make a major clarification, because you probably are already asking this question. You may be asking, Bear, are you saying that a person must know and believe the doctrine of the Trinity in order to be saved? That is a no, okay? There, there is a difference between ignorance and refusal. And so there are plenty of people who trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, yet they do not understand the Trinity. And in fact, they, they may, if you ask them to explain the Trinity, they may you know, be a heretic, basically, in the way that they describe it. They may be like, like jump into modalism or even Arianism, which are things we talked about in last episode. So, you know, th that, that can happen, but I would still consider them true Christians. The difference is that if someone opened the Bible and explained to them, you know, this is what the Bible teaches and explained to them the Trinity, for them to, to, not, to deny that Jesus Christ is equal with God the Father, then, then in my opinion, they're denying the, the true Jesus. Then so they're not, they're no longer worshiping the true God. They and and again, a false God, a false Jesus cannot save you. And so that is the uh, that's the importance of a, a proper understanding of who God is. So those are just a few thoughts to kick us off, but the main purpose for today is to show you some verses in the Bible which support each of the three foundations of the Trinity I mentioned last week. So the three foundations are this, there is only one God, there are three distinct persons, and the three persons are co-equal and co-eternal. And so instead of relying on some uh, it's like illustrations to try to understand the Trinity, there's two strategies I would recommend. One is the Fred Sanders deal where you, you connect the Trinity to the gospel. Try to always think of the Trinity as the Father sending the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then also, when it comes to uh, doctrine-type questions, you can use these three foundations as a way of guarding against 
you know, jumping into error of some kind. So, um, you know, it's almost like a, a person who checks for counterfeit money. They don't study all the different types of counterfeit. They just study the real thing over and over again. So it's almost like drill these three foundations in your head. And then when you hear something contrary to that, you know, you can recognize it as being error. Okay, I'm going to give you some Bible verses to support the three foundations of the Trinity. So foundation number one, there is only one God. The Shema is the easiest place to go for this. It is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And every Jew uh, woke up and said this each morning. It would have been, you know, probably their the easiest memory verse, you know, so to speak, for them. So they said this all the time. This is like a, a mainstay of the Jewish religion. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Another great section of the Bible to establish this fact that there is only one true God is Isaiah 40 through 48. And here, the Lord is speaking about himself and basically comparing himself to other false gods. And so, you know, there's several verses in here. Uh, Isaiah 43:10. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. In Isaiah 44, 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Now, an interesting side note here, Jesus calls himself the first and the last in Revelation 1.17. In, uh, in Isaiah 44.24, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Isaiah 45, 21, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none besides me. Now, those are, so those are from the Old Testament. Uh, uh, you know, one verse in the New Testament here is 1 Corinthians 8, 4. Paul is writing a letter to the church in Corinth, and he says, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Now, I've just given you a few verses, and I, and I am for the other foundations as well. If you're not familiar with the Bible, please do not think that the that these three foundations are just sort of obscure things that are only found in in rare instances in the Bible and that I'm having to dig through and find these. I mean, there are tons of verses to support each of the three foundations, and I'm just kind of giving you the highlights. So foundation number two, there are three distinct persons, and the easiest way to realize this is the baptism of Jesus, which I've talked about previously. Uh, so in Mark 1, 10 through 11, it says this, And when he came up out of the water, that is Jesus, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So here you have the Father speaks, the Son is the one being baptized, and the Holy Spirit descends on the Son. And so there are three distinct persons all in action at the same time. So this, again, was used to defeat this idea of modalism, which is a heresy, a, a false teaching about God, that God is like one actor on stage with three different masks, and sometimes he puts on the Father mask, and sometimes he puts on the Son mask, and sometimes he puts on the Holy Spirit mask. That makes this scene of Jesus' baptism extremely confusing. And so, you know, the, there are three distinct persons Another area to see this is John chapter 14, and this is a bit, uh, it, it's, I'm not going to read the whole thing because it does get a bit wordy, what Jesus is saying here, but I would encourage you to, to go and, and read through John 14 slowly. And, and this is Jesus encouraging his disciples because 
This is the night that he's going to be betrayed by Judas. And so he's encouraging them. And he says, you know, things like this. This is John 14, verses 15 through 18. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Now, this helper here, or comforter, is the Holy Spirit. Um, So he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. And Jesus goes on to say, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And then later in in John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. And then a, a few verses later, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So in this passage here, and and I hadn't mentioned all the verses, but Jesus is encouraging them, and he says, you know, when I leave, because I'm about to leave, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. The Father will send the Holy Spirit in my name, and the Holy Spirit is going to be with you forever. Okay, so that's the basics. But Jesus also uses language where he says, you know, myself and the Father, we will both come to you. So there's this, this strange language where it is the Holy Spirit who's going to you know, be with the disciples forever, but it's as if if we have the Holy Spirit, we also, in some sense, have the Father and Jesus with us as well. And here, here we have the mystery of the Trinity. We have this, this unity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but yet this distinctness as well. And so, you know, I would encourage you, just go, go read John chapter 14. Now, for foundation number three, the three persons are co-equal and co-eternal. So the difference between foundation two and foundation three is that many religions believe in that there are three distinct persons, but they do not hold those three persons uh, equal in status, right? And so they do not consider Jesus or the Holy Spirit equal with God the Father. And so how does the Bible you know, go, to, go about proving that the three persons are co-equal and co-eternal? The easiest way that it shows this is, is it speaks of each person as if they are the Lord. And so nobody really argues about this point, but the, guess what? The Father is Lord. <laughs> and so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because that's just assumed that the Father is God. But the Son is also considered the Lord. And so, you know, check out a previous episode on the deity of Jesus for a lot more information on this. But I'm going to share one example here that I didn't share in that episode. And I'm going to start with a verse in the Old Testament. So this was written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And it's Psalm 102, 25 through 27. And just a side note, this is talking about the Lord. So a few verses earlier, it's, you know, in the context, this is talking about the Lord. So it says, of old, you, that is the Lord, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Now, this verse is clearly talking about Yahweh, or the Lord. If you're reading the Old Testament and you read this verse and and I asked you, who is that talking about? You would say, God, the Lord, okay? But when we go to the New Testament and we read Hebrews 1, 10 through 12, 
this same verse in the Old Testament that could only be talking about the Lord is now applied to Jesus. So in Hebrews 1, 10 through 12, it says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. So this is a quote from an Old Testament passage that could only be talking about the Lord, and now it's applied to Jesus. Jesus is Lord. In The Forgotten Trinity, James White mentions several other examples where basically an Old Testament passage is applied to Jesus, and I, you know, I just don't have time to go into all of those, but definitely you know, check that book out. I, I really enjoyed reading that. It opened up so many things in the Bible. Now, the, the third one here, the Holy Spirit is Yahweh. The Holy Spirit is Lord. First off, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Yahweh uh, or the Spirit of Christ sometimes. So uh, the, also, the Holy Spirit has person. And, you know, despite what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe, the Holy Spirit has person. It, the Holy Spirit is not some sort of energy force like, like in Star Wars. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. The Holy Spirit teaches and speaks the Holy Spirit does things that persons do. So it's it's not just some energy force. In Acts 5, there were many people in the early church who were selling their property and then giving the, the proceeds to the church and to help the poor. And so a lot of people in the church were doing this. And a, one couple, Ananias and Sapphira, they sold their property, but in, they didn't give all the money to the church. They kept some for themselves. Now, there is nothing wrong with that. So Christianity does not demand that you sell everything you have and give it to the church. But the problem is that Ananias and Sapphira were implying that they sold everything. So so they essentially they were lying because they they were they were implying that they sold they they sold all their property and then gave all the money to the church. So Peter confronts them about this and he says this in Acts 5 verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? In the very next verse, Peter says this, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So you see what happens there? Peter considers lying to the Holy Spirit and lying to God the same thing. So the Holy Spirit is God. Now also, the same thing I did with Jesus, where I showed an Old Testament verse, which could only apply to the Lord, and then in the New Testament, it's applied to Jesus. I'm going to do the same thing with the Holy Spirit. So in Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34, I'm not going to quote the whole thing because the whole verse is not quoted in the New Testament. But let me just give you this, Jeremiah 31, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. For I will forgive, and I'm skipping down here, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, in Hebrews 10, verses 15 through 17, the same verse is quoted, but it's applied to the Holy Spirit, because in Hebrews 10, 15, it says this, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then the Spirit adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. A verse that can only be applied to the Lord in the Old Testament is we, we are given further light. We're, we're told a little bit more, and we're told that it was the Holy Spirit who was speaking that. So 
So the Father is Yahweh, the Son is Yahweh, and the Spirit is Yahweh. One final verse to show the equality of all three is the baptismal formula or the the Great Commission. And here's the verse. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The name here is singular, and to a Jewish mind, the name is very important. So, you know, in American culture, we may pick a name for a a deeper reason, but a lot of times we just pick a name just because we think it, it sounds good. But for the Jews, the name was very important. And so let me give you some verses to to back this up. They're all from Psalms. Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 25, 11, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Psalm 29, 2. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Psalm 34, 3, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. And then the final one, Psalm 103, 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. And so here we have the singular name, but each of the three persons share that name, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, James White loves to use this example. He's I've heard him use it in debates and um, and also in the Forgotten Trinity, but, you know, Put yourself in the mind of a Jehovah's Witness. Again, they believe Jesus was Michael the Archangel, and and also the Holy Spirit is this impersonal sort of energy force. Okay, so let's adapt that mindset for just a second, and then now let's read this verse again. Go, therefore, baptizing in the name of the, the Father, Michael the Archangel, and an impersonal energy force right? So that verse just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense that all three of those would share the same name, you know? So when you take theology from other religions and, and put it in the Bible, you'll find that in some, for, for some verses, that theology will seem to make more sense, but it cannot account for the entire truth of the Bible. And that is why, you know, millions of Christians before me have believed in this concept of the Trinity. We wouldn't just dream it up because it's too complex for that, but it is Christians trying to be faithful to all that the Bible has to say. So hopefully you're seeing that the concept of the Trinity is is taught you know, throughout the Bible, and it, it's the Bible's full of verses which proclaim there is only one true God, the Creator and Savior. Yet, in the New Testament, the light is sort of turned on brighter, and we see the fuller picture of the one true God as three distinct persons, all having the one being of God, equal in nature or, or essence, so what they are is equal. There's only one being of God, yet their roles are distinct in the salvation of mankind. Now, my first episode on the Trinity brought on more questions than probably all other episodes combined. So I have really enjoyed uh, getting those. And I was at a like a homecoming football game at Wake Christian where I graduated high school. And, and so I saw a lot of people that listened to this podcast and got to discuss some things with them. So again, I plan on answering all of those questions about the Trinity in, you know, in just the next few weeks. And so keep sending those in. If you think that I'm too busy, if you're like, oh, I have a question, but he's probably too busy, I'm just not going to worry with it, please send that in. I do not get as many questions for this podcast as you may think, and so please send them in. I'm happy. I'm kind of making a list and and making sure that I cover all of those, and so if you have any questions specifically about the Trinity, you know, get those in quickly because I'd, I'd love to cover those in an episode. 
You can email me at bearchristianity at gmail.com or you can message me on Instagram at the real bear martin. And so those are two ways two ways to contact me. Next week I'm going to talk about uh, and I'm putting this in air quotes problems or problem verses in the Bible with the Trinity. So things like where Jesus says the Father is greater than I or Jesus tells the rich young ruler, you know, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Those types of things. Now, if you're a steady listener of the show, you know that pretty much after I mention my email and Instagram that I'm going to get into a section called A Bear in the Woods right after that. Instead, today, I'd like to take a few minutes to honor my father-in-law, Michael Edwards. And um, if you could see me right now, you know I'm, I'm holding back some tears. Uh, he passed away October 8th. And uh, so this has been a really difficult week for our family, a difficult month, really. Um, he, as well as his son, uh, both have been in wake med on ventilators and in, you know, essentially a, a coma or unconscious for about a month now. And uh, so they were both in isolation for a while. Andrew, his son, is now out of isolation, and we, we are getting some good reports about him. He, they both were in extremely critical condition for a long time. And so Andrew is starting to recover some, and we, we have ha- heard some good news about his prognosis um, just recently. And so, you know, if you're aware of that situation and, and you've been praying, thank you so much for your prayers and, and messages and concerns. And uh, so we are certainly grateful for that. Um, but my father-in-law, he fought COVID extremely hard. He was in isolation for a long time, and not you know we weren't able to get in and see him or anything like that. And so he he eventually was able to get out of isolation, still in very critical condition, but out of isolation. And all three of his daughters were able to go to the hospital, you know, hold his hand and and um, and talk talk to him. Now he was unconscious the whole time, but they were able to talk with him and and spend some time, you know, with their dad. And then so they he got out of isolation. They were able to go to the hospital, and then that night. Or, or very early the next morning, he passed away. And so, um, you know, again, thank you for the prayers. And this is a, a tough time for our family. But I wanted to, to take a few minutes just to honor him. He was an, a great Christian man. Um, you know, I know that is said a lot, but he truly was. Um, and he, now he is in the presence of the Lord. So we, we are happy about that. Um, but we, we certainly miss him. I'm so blessed to to know him. I mean, I have a great relationship with my own dad, and so just you know, having Mike in my life as well, I just I'm blessed beyond measure at strong, godly men in my life to to look up to. A few quick stories about him: He loved hunting and fishing, and he was really, really good with a shotgun. And so occasionally, our family would would go. He had some land, and we would go and shoot plays with with shotguns. So. If you if you're not familiar with that, that's where people go pull and you know there's this um, disc, this clay disc that goes flying through the air, and then you try to shoot it. This is sort of a practice for hunting birds, and so uh, so again, he was really good with a shotgun. So we you know there was usually two of us that would go at the same time. Like for instance, my wife and I, and so you know they you you'd pull they they'd shoot the clay in the air, and then my, maybe I would try to shoot it, and if I miss, my wife would take a shot. And a lot of times we would both miss. And then right before the clay hit the ground, 
you know, Mike was standing over to the side and he would just, you know, explode the the clay, right? So he was just a great shot. So he would wait till the very last second. We would try to hit it, you know, several times if we could get off that many shots. And then right before it hit the ground, if everybody had missed it, he would just sort of clean it up. And so then we'd always look over there at him and he would just sort of stand there with his shotgun, you know, uh, sort of leaning on his arm and uh, he would just have this little smirk about him. So, <laughs> so uh you know, he's awesome with a shotgun. And then also when I started dating Meredith, his daughter, I was really obsessed with learning to play golf. And, you know, he didn't really ever play golf, but he joined a country club there in Wilson because I, I went to college in the town that, that they lived in. He joined a country club. And so we started playing golf all the time. And it was uh, it was just special times with him. And now I, I cherish, you know, looking back, I cherish those times even more. He was the luckiest golfer to ever play the game. He just had this uncanny ability to bounce a golf ball off any tree out there and get it to bounce back into the fairway. So we would, we laughed about that a lot. Um, but uh, I just really enjoyed those, those moments. On a deeper level, he led his family the right way. He was constantly putting others before himself. He, he loved hosting others at their house. So they they just had the house that everybody always came to and he always had everything there, right? He had ice and plenty of food and just he he was always serving other people and he just loved it. And he was always serving his own family and and specifically putting his wife above himself and and just elevating her. All three of his daughters on separate occasions like without getting together and talking about this all three of them mentioned that about him. They said, I, I knew he loved my mom by the way he treated her, and they really um, they really appreciated that from their dad. And so, you know, I, I think we can certainly learn something from the way he lived life and the way he led his family. I always close my episodes with a verse, and this one is inspired by Mike, and it is uh, Proverbs 5.18. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. And so this this passage is about being faithful in marriage. And the secret, if you will, that Mike knew about is that it is, it is not uh, seeking after our own uh, pleasures or enjoyment. J- true joy is found in putting others above yourself and exalting them and praising them. And that's the way he treated his wife. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. 